Today's show is brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person in Dolores Park eating completely gluten-rich chocolate chip cookies. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is one of my favorite journalists, Michael Pollan, and he's the best-selling author of several books, most famously, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's written a new book called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. That is quite a headline. Michael, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. I'm having trouble remembering I'm going to keep this to the side so I read it properly <laughs> every time. So people, but it is, let's just say it's called uh, How to Change Your Mind. Um, so let's, uh, I want to go into your background first because I think people obviously do know you're so well known as a writer, um, especially around food. And I know that's where you've made your fame, although you do write about nature, really, I think, right? Yeah, before I wrote about food, I was really, my my master subject has been the human engagement with the right. natural world. Right. Food is obviously a very important part of that. We mm-hmm. change nature more through our eating choices than anything else we do. Sure. Whether you're talking about the land, uh, the atmosphere, the composition of species. Um, but if you go back before that, I've been really engaged in this symbiotic relationship we have with other species. Mm-hmm. And these other these domesticated species are ones that sort of get ahead in evolution by gratifying our desires. Sure. Um, and some of those desires, you know, I've looked at intensively are food, beauty, things like that. But the desire to change consciousness, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, is a universal human desire. Absolutely. There's no, I, there's no culture. Uh, there's, one, there, uh, there's one exception, which is the Inuit have, and they, it's just because nothing good grows where they live. Um, <laughs> but as soon as they go to Canada or something, yeah, they, uh, they get on the, get yes. on the mushrooms. All right, but let's start with your background first. For sure. people who don't know, let's assume people don't know who you are. I obviously read all your books. Talk about your back. How did you get to writing about this? Very, give me a quick bio of you. Well, uh, When I was in school, I really loved reading about nature and Thoreau and Emerson and uh, Melville, John Muir, these were my heroes. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of school, and I did a little graduate work in English at Columbia uh, back in the, a really long time ago. And uh, when I got out of school, uh, a couple years later, I was working as a magazine editor. I worked at Harper's Magazine for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we bought a little place in Northwest Connecticut, about a hundred miles from New York. And I began gardening really seriously. And um, what got you into it? Just you just. Well, I had gardened as a kid. I was mm-hmm. as an eight-year-old. I had what I called a farm, mm-hmm. and anytime I could grow three strawberries, I'd put them in a cup and sell them to my mother. So <laughs> it was a going concern, and um, so I always loved plants and gardening. And the first time I had an opportunity to have my own garden came in my late twenties. I, I guess it was when I was about thirty, and I went into gardening with all these very romantic notions about nature that I had gotten from the American transcendentalists, mm-hmm. uh, which was essentially that uh, nature is perfect as it is, that um, we shouldn't try to change anything. Uh, we should just admire it and have mystical experiences. And uh, But as soon as you start gardening, you are in a much more complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. As Thoreau found uh, at, at Walden, he, you know, mm-hmm. he put it in a bean field to support his two-year experiment in self-sufficiency, and he was racked with guilt about pulling weeds. He didn't. He didn't know why he had a right to make a, a what he called invidious distinctions between weeds uh, weeds. his beans and these weeds, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, no offense either, but I made a garden 
that honored that way of thinking, and it had no fence. Mm-hmm. And I promptly was beset by uh, a groundhog mm-hmm. or woodchuck mm-hmm. and uh, another pest, but got into this I feel like war. We got into a National Lampoon movie, but go ahead. Yeah, it's a little bit like Bill Murray in yeah. Caddyshack. Yeah. I mean, I, I identify with him in that movie. Um, and I got into this war with this woodchuck, actually, that became my own kind of horticultural Vietnam, where mm-hmm. I kind of escalated up to a point of destroying the village in order to save yeah. the village, firebombing essentially his borough. It was really stupid. Um, but it made me realize that our behavior in nature in a garden, that sense of entitlement, that sense that since we have the big brains, we should be able to, to do outwit yeah. anybody and do whatever we want, was a representative of how mm-hmm. our species is behaving in nature. So I began writing a series of essays using my garden as a laboratory mm-hmm. to think through these ideas and figure out whether there was a better way to engage with nature than the way most Americans had inherited right. from Thoreau, which was either, uh, you know, it was the it was the pristine goddess or it right. was to be raped. Right. And we have no middle ground between right. those two. Do you remember Henry Mitchell from the oh, Washington yeah. Post? Oh, one yeah. of my favorite writers. He was wonderful. He was their columnist for yep. years. He never, it wasn't about gardening. It was about life and death. Yeah. Whole, well, and that's, that's what gardening is did. if you yeah. think about it. I mean, he it's a wonderful, wonderful... Yeah, he was great. Yeah. There's a wonderful tradition of garden writing in America. Yeah, beautiful. So I started there trying to figure out, well, is there a better way to engage with these species than, uh, mm-hmm. you know, firebombing them? And um, Did you kill the groundhog? Nah, I put up a fence finally. Oh, did you? <laughs> Solar-powered fence. It was uh-huh. also, and I put peanut butter on it to, to make the deer go get a shock and learn about uh, oh, how to stay away. Um, so that kind of, actually, in retrospect, mm-hmm. that set my course as a writer. And, and when I go back, I recently had to reread my first book, which is called Second Nature. It mm-hmm. came out in the early 90s. Oh, I got to find it. And uh, it's, it's this collection of essays, including The War with the Woodchuck. And... Um, I had to reread it because when I published it, there were no audiobooks. And now the uh, Audible wanted me to do an audiobook. And I hadn't read it in like 20, 30 years. And I had this amazing experience of every idea I've written since is in that book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't had a new idea since that Right, book. right, right. That's, uh, you in, know what? in germ. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I wouldn't know it at thing. the time. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. Mm-hmm. So we have these abiding questions mm-hmm. uh, as writers. And we keep coming back to them in some mm-hmm. way or other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a big part of your your career as a writer is figuring out what those are. Because mm-hmm. in the first book, you don't know what they are. Right. Um, so what was that question from your... For me, it was like, is how should we engage with the nature. natural world? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the kind of like the philosophical background to the environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. And what's wrong with the way Americans have traditionally done it? And how our most beautiful ideas about nature, which mm-hmm. is this worship of wilderness... Sure. Um, actually gets us into trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, America created the Wilderness Park. No other country thought that wilderness was something to... That needed to be protected. Yes. Uh, They didn't have it anymore, for one thing, by the Mm -hmm. time the Romantic Movement came along. We still had a lot of land that we could lock up and throw away Mm -hmm. the key. And we did this amazing thing. We created uh, Yosemite and Yellowstone and all these national parks. Um, But that's all we have as an environmental ethic. And it's great for the 12% of the land you can Save. lock up, yeah, or 8%, but for the other 92%, it was silent as an ethic. And, right. and it became like, well, either save it or destroy it. Mm-hmm. And um, so we need an ethic for the rest of the landscape. 
And that's where I thought that the garden had a lot of potential sure. resources. Right. Um, and people like Wendell Berry, who was a you know real hero to me, the farmer mm-hmm. and, and writer. And so I, I so I spent a lot of time thinking about that relationship. And it and that you got into food then. Yeah, and I got into food because the issues you deal with in the in the garden are very similar to what the farmer deals with. You mm-hmm. have to deal with pests. You have to keep your soil fertile. You have to understand genetics and varieties and things like that. Mm-hmm. And Actually, as a garden writer, I was doing a series of pieces for the Times Magazine. And back in the late 90s, I started hearing about this new technology called genetically modified crops. Mm -hmm. And this was the newest thing going in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to grow a genetically modified crop in my garden, learn everything about it? And um, and so that was my first. I, and so I did a piece that ended up being a cover story called Playing God in the Garden for the Times Magazine in 98 or something. And uh, the technology was new and I had wonderful access to Monsanto and all their customers. Uh, and I, you know, and, I, and that was my introduction to looking at big ag. Right. And I went out west. I was an Easterner then. Mm-hmm. And uh, Easterners have no idea how agriculture works in no. this country because, yeah. you know, there are lots of cute little farms with picket in fences. Vermont, yeah. yeah and a hundred acres, yeah. you know. And then, Connecticut. Yeah. And I went out to... The um, Amish. Exactly. It's it's so it's very sweet and it's wonderful, but it's history. Well, the Amish have some big farms, but go ahead. Yeah, they're getting bigger, but yeah. they still farm yeah. in an interesting way. So, but as part of this, Monsanto proudly wanted to show show off one of their model farms, and I went out to the Magic Valley of Idaho where they were growing these genetically modified potatoes called the new the new leaf uh, that had uh, a, t- uh, a bacterial toxin in every leaf, and so it would poison the uh, Colorado potato beetle. But that was not what was interesting when I got there. What was interesting is that there was such a thing as a farm that was 35,000 acres Mm -hmm. divided into crop circles, each of which were 175 acres that were um, had this sweep second hand of the irrigation pivot Mm -hmm. through which the farmer sent water pesticide, fertilizer, and did it all from a bunker, right. remote control. Yeah. I had no idea. But part of the reason he did it from the bunker is he was using pesticides that were so toxic, he couldn't enter his field for three days after he sprayed. And I just had, uh, and the reason he was doing this was because uh, there is a, uh, a disease that potatoes sometimes get called net necrosis. Mm-hmm. And you've seen it. It's that little uh, black line or mm-hmm. brown line or dot in a, in a, when you slice open a potato. And to control that purely cosmetic defect, mm-hmm. you had to use this uh, horrible pesticide called Monitor. And uh, I asked him why uh, was there, uh, he said, well, because um, McDonald's, which buys 8% of the crop, wouldn't take any potatoes with net necrosis. And I said, is there another way to control it? And he said, yeah, just don't grow russet Burbanks. That was the particular kind of potato. And I said, well, why not? Why grow? And he said, well, McDonald's only takes russet Burbank potatoes. Uh, and, and then I said, why do they only take that? He said, well, they give you the longest spud. And, and Americans love a long French fry. Right. And you know that red yep. uh, cardboard thing with that bouquet of French yeah. fries? You don't get that effect with any right. other potato. Right. But it made me realize that we were implicated wow. in the system. Because totally. our aesthetic preference... Right. Um, which they gave us. Which, in a way, they gave us, but also that there was no way for us to communicate with that farmer. If we understood, we'd happily well, we'll go for a shorter potato. French fry. Right. But the food chain Don't had gotten so long yeah. that that communication wow. between consumer and producer had broken down. Right. And um, so that was my first kind of lesson in industrial agriculture mm-hmm. and how it worked and how we were implicated in it. And uh, 
And that set me off. On, on everything else. Yeah. What was the impact of your food writing? Because I think more than any food writer, you probably had the most impact on, uh, especially because you were writing a lot about technology. This is a technology-focused podcast, yeah. although we talk about everything. Um, you opened a lot of people's eyes to that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to measure your impact as a writer. As you know, there's so many factors at yeah. work. And, and a lot of people credit, give me too much credit for the, the rise of the food movement and mm-hmm. this this new politics around yeah, food. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Eric Schlosser had already written Fast yep, Food Nation before me. Marian Nessel had written Food Politics. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a, you know, a perfect storm of a, a, a bunch of journalists plus some food safety scares that were mm-hmm. happening there and mad cow disease Which too. Which right in the middle of another one now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And every food safety uh, scare kind of peels back the curtain on the system. And, and people like when mad cow came up, people were like, wait a minute, we're feeding cows to cows? Mm-hmm. They had no idea. None of us right. had any idea. The ranchers had no idea. Um, and so we've had this learning experience. And I think the big change from the period before Omnivore's Dilemma is just that people are, are much more conscious and interested in the story of where their yeah. food comes from. And Absolutely. every food manufacturer now has to tell a story, whether they're mm-hmm. making it up or not. Right. But it used to be that you just bought this object Whatever and you had no sense that it had an, a set of origins or that it in fact was not a thing, but a set of relationships yeah. and put you in relation to, nat- to nature and farming. Or anything we get. I remember years ago when I was at the Wall Street Journal, hundred, like a hundred, 20 years ago, I said, why don't we follow how a computer is made mm. so they can see right back to the kid who's shoving the thing yeah. into it, like every piece of it, take it, the whole thing. They didn't want to do it. It was really interesting. You know, I think it's a great Because I knew it would end up at a kid. Yeah. Do you know and, what I mean? And like a kid was, who was being exploited yes. somewhere yeah. in China. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's one of the great taboos of, of uh, capitalism, basically, mm-hmm. that to know too much about the origins uh, makes your marketing much more difficult. Right. Uh, you want to create you want to create a utopian narrative about your product, how right. it's going to solve problems. And it's never about where it comes from. Uh, or it never was, but now there is more interest. Yeah. I mean, I've been surprised. I mean, it worked with food. Why isn't there an omnivore's dilemma of clothing, for mm-hmm. example? Mm-hmm. Here is another agricultural product, huge impact on on the environment. Um, and there's a little bit, you know, there's the movement to look at sweatshops, and that's been helpful, and uh, but not to the extent that it has happened of with how food. it's made. And it's because food is so intimate. We take it right. into our body. The clothing just stays on the outside. So you had written about food for some, I want to get to this book, how you got to this. So you were writing about food. Obviously, it's a great business for you because mm-hmm. everybody wants another book from you about where food was going. And your last one was, was, was it Eat Food? Was cooked. It? Cooked. Oh, Cooked. That's yeah. right. And then you had a series on Netflix right. too. Um, and, and, and then you would eat food. That was a shorter one. Yeah, it was called Food Rules. Food Rules, And yeah. my big food rule, you know, I, and I have to come up eat with something food, else or this much. is going to be on my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Right. My editor at the journal oh, said- Oh, no, it was brilliant. What do you, why did you have to think of a new one? Oh, I don't know. It just, you, you know, you always want to be looking forward. How about don't touch that? <laughs> Put it down. <laughs> Put it down now and <laughs> step back from Get the plate. Get a carrot <laughs> and make sure it's from somewhere safe. Like I My editor at the Wall Street Journal, uh, for whom I just did a piece of on the new book, he said, all right, we're on board, but you have to let us call it Take drugs, not too many, mostly psychedelics. Right, right. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but they you chickened out. They, they didn't use it. They didn't use it? 
Why? <laughs> who is that editor? Who oh, I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I used to work. I'm sure you know who he is. Um, so we're going to need to cycle. So you were writing about food. Yeah. How did you make the, so Cook, the, the series is still on Netflix? Uh, no, it was four parts. For four There's parts. kind of a sequel that's going to come, right. but I'm not involved with it. Right. Yeah. And so you were writing about food. What made you shift? Yeah. Well, a couple of reasons. Um, when I finish a book, I often do a couple long pieces to, to kind mm-hmm. of do some R&D on a new topic. And, uh, and I had heard about this research going on using psilocybin, the ingredient mm-hmm. in magic mushrooms, to treat people who were uh, approaching death, mm-hmm. people, cancer, uh, people with cancer diagnoses. And uh, I was fascinated by this work, and it tied back into a discussion I'd had about uh, drugs in, um, in uh, Botany and Desire, where I wrote about cannabis and wh- why we're attracted to cannabis and what, what's in it for the plant. Um, so there was that, and I and so I did a piece for the New Yorker, a long piece, and I talked to dozens of patients who had had just the most powerful, often mystical experiences on uh, at a single psilocybin session that completely changed their thinking about death, and allowed them, in the case of some of them, to die with perfect equanimity. I mean, it was mm-hmm. the most uh, most unlikely, most implausible mm-hmm. thing. Um, and I was got very curious as to how could this chemical, this molecule, mm-hmm. uh, affect us in this way, create an experience that would actually change such deeply held views. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, as a writer, there are two kinds of articles. There's one you finish and you're like, I am so sick of this subject. I'm so mm-hmm. glad I'm done. And then there's the other where, like, God, I just scratched the surface. Yeah, there's tech would be so much. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still interested in tech. And and I was, I'm still interested in food, but mm-hmm. I was ready to move in part. Because as a writer, and this is a, really a craft question, I like writing near, nearer to the beginning of the learning curve. Mm-hmm. I like not knowing. That's a really good point. And the way I write my articles and my books is uh, they're stories of my learning process. Right, yeah, you That's do. That's the narrative. Yeah, the hunting. And, yeah, I'm exactly. I'm so sorry you inspired Mark Zuckerberg to yeah. animals. <laughs> you kept citing that to me. I was like, oh, geez. You can't take total responsibility I'm for what you write. You. Yeah, <laughs> I'm giving you that. So, um, but I, I just enjoy that process of learning and I enjoy taking the reader on that process. The alternative, mm-hmm. of course, is you write from a place of perfect knowledge right. as an expert. And I find that a little dead on the page. And, yeah. and I actually oh, no, think I like your... readers don't yeah. like to be lectured at. Right. So, And it was becoming a little difficult for me to do that with food um, because I knew a lot. I was now an expert. I was an advocate. And it deprived me of that space where I like to be as a writer. So I was open to a new subject. And thankfully, I have an editor. I have the best editor in the world. She's edited every single one of my books mm-hmm. who was like, great, go for it. So, and you picked this topic, why? Well, because we'll get into it, more um, it, it, it fed back into this idea of uh, why is it that we want to change consciousness? Why is that adaptive? Why is mm-hmm. it, wh- what does it do for the species? Um, how does it help us evolve? There was that. And second, what's in it for the mushroom mm-hmm. or, the, or the fungus that is at the heart of LSD? Right. Um, that's a very curious chemical to make. Right. Um, there's simpler chemicals that could... What's in it for the def- mushroom? What do you mean? Well... For for plants and fungi to make these very complicated molecules that mm-hmm. happen to uh, be the key that unlocks receptors in the hum- in the mm-hmm. animal brain, animal brain there's yeah. simpler poisons they could make. But yeah. for some reason, they're making these really complicated things that work on us. And, yeah. and that's a very curious question. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that if you are defending yourself against a predator, 
killing the predator isn't necessarily the best strategy because mm -hmm. uh, you will evolve, you'll select for resistance very mm -hmm. quickly, as with a strong pesticide. Right. The, the members the of that species, will yeah, they'll figure it out. Um, whereas if you discombobulate your predator, mm -hmm. you confuse, confuse them, them yeah. you make them forget Actually, where you a lot are. Of sea creatures do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just kind of mess with their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot better. So mushrooms are messing with our minds. On so purpose. mushrooms are messing with our minds and probably animal <laughs> minds. Yeah. And but it's also become a, a strategy for world domination because mm -hmm. people's interest in these mushrooms, which we now know goes back probably a thousand years, mm -hmm. they would pick them up and move them. And every time you carry a mushroom, whether it's a the spores, go yeah, the spore, you're you're just trailing yeah. this fairy dust, it's a this perfect, pixie dust. It's a perfect uh, yeah. thing to get around the world. And so you know what? Some of the best habitats for psilocybin mushrooms now are college campuses, mm -hmm. uh, the lawns in front of police stations where uh -huh. people are like getting rid of stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, th they're human habitats. And when I, I went- I no idea. I'm going to go right over to the police. <laughs> well, actually, after I published the article in the New Yorker, uh, I was having lunch near campus. I teach at Berkeley and the waiter sidles up to me and he's taking the order and he says, do you know that there's psilocybin all over campus? And uh -huh. I said, no, where? And he said, look at the wood chips. <laughs> Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> well, landscaping, wood chips, which all mostly come from yeah. lumber mills in the Pacific Northwest where there's yeah. lots of psilocybes, they're full of spores. And of course, they get spread all over the country. Wow. So look we, in the no, wood chips. Oh, what is Jeff Sessions going to do now? Um, <laughs> all right, when we get back, we're here talking, having a fascinating session with Michael Pollan. His new book, I'm going to read the entire thing right now, uh, is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. So we're going to get into what he found next. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how to find them. It's the smartest way to hire, and right now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provides access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and to reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, this week I talked to Dave Itzkoff, New York Times uh, writer, New York Times Twitterer, and the biographer of Robin Williams, has a oh, new book out called Robin. I, I grew up with him. Mm -hmm. You probably did as well. And I forgot what a giant star he was for Mark how long. For Mm -hmm. And that he was a TV star, stand-up comedy star, wasn't a movie star for a good 10 years into yep. his career, then was a giant movie star for another 20 years. It was mm -hmm. a fascinating life story. It's a great book, and it's a really good interview, Fantastic. if I do say so myself. You'll like it. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
We're back with Michael Pollan. His new book is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Okay, Michael, we're going to get to all those things. <laughs> so what does the new science of psychedelics teach us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence? Well, it teaches us, it's teaching us things on, on two different levels. Okay. Uh, one is therapeutic, mm -hmm. um, all those illnesses. Which you talked about, cancer. Yes, cancer, which, depression. Which uh, cannabis is now, that's the big. Yeah, but cannabis helps people who uh, have nausea mm -hmm. and uh, are trying to build up their diet uh, mm -hmm. their their you know their calories basically when they when they're taking uh, you know chemo drugs mm -hmm. um, and so it's been very helpful for that but this is helping at a very different level this is helping at the psycho spiritual level basically mm -hmm. i mean you know, as I've oncologists have told me, um, you know, Paxil and uh, uh, you know Zoloft—they don't help with no. the kind of fear and anxiety that attends a cancer diagnosis, right, right. because it's 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 very much a, a spiritual issue. And so, what seems to happen? So there's a, there's a lot of therapeutic research going research on. going on, and we can talk about that. And depression, anxiety, obsession, addiction, which is really interesting and, and mm -hmm. kind of surprising. Um, and then there's also this kind of pure neuroscience work going on mm -hmm. of what can these drugs teach us about the mind? Right. Um, consciousness. Or expanding the mind as they. Well, expanding the mind, but even about normal consciousness, because mm -hmm. a, one good way to understand a very complex system is disturb it, mm -hmm. right? Think about particle collider, right? Mm -hmm. You take mm -hmm. the atom, you put it under incredible stress, and it, it yields its secrets. Um, it pops off, you know, new particles that you've never too. seen. And it works with people too. And it works with normal consciousness. So you can disturb normal consciousness and then watch what happens in the brain and learn a lot. So I'll give you an example. One of the, the big surprises of this research early on was that the um, when they started doing fMRIs and, and mm -hmm. other kinds of scans, was that they expected to see a brain that was hyperstimulated because of the fireworks of the experience. Mm -hmm. But what they found instead was that a very important brain network was actually suppressed, uh, downregulated significantly. And that's called the default mode network, which I'd never heard of. And mm -hmm. it's actually only recognized about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and it's the part of your brain, it connects parts of the cortex, which is the most recent part of the brain with deeper, older areas involved with emotion and memory. Uh, and it's a hub. It's a very important communications hub. One neuroscientist called it the corporate executive of the brain or the, or the orchestra conductor mm -hmm. or the capital city. The brain's a hierarchical system and this is on top. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's involved in metacognitive processes like self-reflection, theory of mind, the ability to imagine mental states in others, mm -hmm. uh, time travel, the ability to think about the future or the mm -hmm. past. Um, and... Uh, and what it's called the autobiographical memory. It's, it's the part of your brain that appears to connect what happens to you day to day with your narrative of who you are. Right. So it helps you maintain a stable sense of identity over time, mm -hmm. which is probably illusory, but very useful. Mm -hmm. uh, so it does, it's involved in all these very important uh, functions related it's to the sense of, the brain, of yeah. self, the ego. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that it goes off uh, is turned off by this experience. So you want it turned off. Well, meditators turn it off too. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. that chattering neurotic voice in your head that actually gets in the way. That's very defensive and has its trigger happy reactions to things. Yeah. And so turning it off um, has very interesting effects. Uh, it is felt phenomenologically as a matter of felt experience as a, a complete dissolution of ego. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a hallmark of the high dose psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. um, but when it goes offline, 
other networks in the brain that right. don't ordinarily talk start striking up conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what gives you synesthesia, the ability to see a flavor mm -hmm. or, or um, uh, feel a sound. And it may also uh, account for hallucinations mm -hmm. because your emotion centers are talking directly to your visual cortex. Right. Um, so you get all these new connections that temporarily uh, are formed in the brain, mm -hmm. new linkages. While you're on these. While you're on the drug. Um, we don't know how they endure uh, because new connections sometimes do seem to endure. Um, after the afterwards, yeah. um, but we so do know that you're, you're essentially saying you have this sort of asshole in charge of you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you, you somehow lock but him in a closet. You lock him in a closet, but but I don't want to demean the asshole completely. No, because he gets things done. Things yeah, done. he yeah. gets this podcast done. He yeah. got my book written, so right. you know, give him some credit. Yeah, but yeah, it often gets in our way, and and it particularly gets in the way if you're depressed or anxious, which are very similar. Um, formations. One is concerned with the regret about the future and the other mm -hmm. is regret about the past. Right. Um, but the ego basically enforces very destructive habits of thought in some people. And um, it is it gets you stuck. It is defensive. It's defending you against the other, uh, whatever is not you. Mm -hmm. And it's defending you against strong emotions and, and uh, your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And um, and some people hypothesize, neuroscientists hypothesize that depression is, the, is partly the function of an overactive ego. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting a, a break from that, even if it's a six hour vacation, right. gives people, uh, reminds people that there's another way to be, another place to go mentally. Even if they've never been there. That, well, or they haven't been there for years. I, I interviewed a woman who had not been free of depression since 1991. Mm -hmm. She forgot what it was like not to be depressed. Right. And she had only a month, but she had a month completely free of depression. And that changed everything. Sure. She said, oh, I know that place. Right. I can get back to that place through other means, through meditation, through thought. Right. Because the more you reinforce a thought pattern, the more deeply it so becomes Interestingly, I want to get back to therapeutics, but a lot of Silicon Valley people uh, are are doing this. I yeah. can't go to a lunch where I don't get offered a LSD experience or let's do ayahuasca together, which I dearly would love to do, but not with them. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Well, like, I, I may or may important. not. I don't want to vomit. I'm not a big vomiter. But um, they bring ayahuasca people, and I know it's illegal here, but they manage to do it. It's um, not always illegal. There's a, a, there, there are a couple churches uh, that actually have have the right under a Supreme Court decision uh, to, uh, to administer ayahuasca. All right. And a few more churches about to be established. But anyway. Under but, a medical, under... No, not under medical, under a religious dispensation, religious the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, the same thing that allows Indians, uh, Native yes, Americans to, do, to use to peyote. The, peyote yeah. um, you know, it's very hard for the government to say you're not a religion. Right. And if you say you're a religion, it's hard for who them are they? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so anyway. talk about this, this concept of, because everyone who talks to me about it, they're all entrepreneurs and they feel like they're stuck and they can't, they're successful. A lot of them are very successful entrepreneurs and they feel like they don't have another idea. And so what they do is use LSD or ayahuasca seems to be a popular thing. Mm -hmm. to, and they all meditate. They're, a lot of them are very deeply into meditation. Um, sometimes it seems ridiculous when they talk to me about it, but they do believe they get ideas, that it mm -hmm. opens their brain up to... Well, I think there's a few things going on. There are mm -hmm. lots of tech people and I've mm -hmm. met lots of tech people who are deeply committed to psychedelics of all different Not kinds. Not just psychedelics, but also all kinds of... Um, pills to well life hacking. Life I mean, hacking, they're they're yeah. kind of you know they're they the idea that you can improve food, your mind with chemistry. And, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So it's it so 
part of it is about that life hacking ethos that mm -hmm. we can live forever, download our brains, yep. all that kind of stuff. That's part of it, but I think that's a small part of it. Part of it is Burning Man, mm -hmm. where many of them are exposed to these uh, substances for the first time and, and right. sometimes have transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't de-emphasize the importance of Burning Man and the history of, of Silicon Valley's interest. But the other thing that really surprised me is that there are very deep roots in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Going back to the 50s, there is something about engineers and psychedelics mm -hmm. that needs to be explored. Yeah. And, I, and I touch Obviously on in the book. is the most famous. He's the most famous, but it turns out it had been going on for a couple decades. Mm -hmm. um, in the early 50s, the first real Silicon Valley company before it was called Silicon Valley mm -hmm. was Ampex. Do you remember mm -hmm. Ampex? Yes, they they were. Make magnetic recording for mm -hmm. computers and videotape. And they were, you know, had tens of, tens of thousands of employees. They're somewhere in the South Bay. And uh, a couple of their engineers were turned on to LSD by a very odd, interesting character named Al Hubbard, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes called the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. He was, a, he was an amateur. Uh, he was an inventor. He was a very dubious character who worked for the OSS, the predecessor organization of the Should CIA, may have worked for the CIA, was a rum runner and a gun runner. I mean, just a really interesting, mm -hmm. mysterious character. Uh, he always wore a paramilitary uh, uniform. He kept a, a sidearm, you know, by his side at all yeah. times. He had this military crew cut. He was very Too bizarre. Too much LSD. Maybe. Um, Too but much self-realization. He became an evangelist for LSD and he wanted to turn on the best and brightest mm -hmm. and have the wisdom trickle down to the populace. And he, one of the places he went was the computer industry, the early computer industry, when people were just designing the first chips. And engineers who were working on chips found LSD very helpful in imagining a structure as complex as a, as a computer chip. Because remember, mm -hmm. before there were computers, designing a computer chip was much harder. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so you had, a, it was a three-dimensional structure layered and you had to hold an incredible amount of information mm -hmm. in your head. So there was that. Um, and then, uh, but a couple of these engineers were so excited by LSD that they left their company, formed something called the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park, mm -hmm. and began giving LSD to people for 500 bucks and, and giving them a certain kind of guided experience. Mm -hmm. And they gave it to people like Doug Engelbart, very important figure in the history of- uh, Creator of the mouse yeah. and other and, and before he created the mouse on LSD, he created something called the Tinkle Toy, mm -hmm. which was a device uh, he did this under the influence. They had a creativity experiment. It was a device to help boys uh, toilet train. Hmm. The stream of urine would turn this pinwheel. Oh, wow, that's perfect. He went on to do the computer mouse right. email, <laughs> the, like the interface. Yeah. <laughs> Makes total sense. I have um, two cents. So the, there is a lot of, uh, I asked uh, uh, Peter Schwartz, you know, Peter Schwartz, futurist, uh, salesforce.com executive, what is it about engineers and uh, psychedelics? Mm -hmm. And he thought it had something to do with the fact that engineers, unlike scientists, deal with an irreducible complexity. There's so many variables mm -hmm. that instead of reducing a problem to simplicity, the way scientists' minds work, mm -hmm. they have to find patterns in a very complex, complex space. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's what LSD does. It helped, and other psychedelics, it helps you find patterns. I'd be very curious to hear from other engineers whether they whether this rings true to them. Yeah. But I thought that was an interesting explanation. Well, a lot of them, uh, for some reason, that talk about it as uh, idea generation. Yeah. Like, and, not and, just complex, it's that I don't have an idea in this way right. of me. There, it's in my head, Yeah. and I can do it again. Some of it is I right. did it, there was a moment of clarity on some 
thing. Yeah, people invent. do get ideas. I mean, there, yeah. there are memes that get started. Um, I mean, Stuart Brands, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. it was on an LSD trip that he had this idea that we need to see a picture of the earth from space and that would change our whole sense of the environment. Right, right. You know, that he said he was on the roof of his so, house in North Beach. So you did guided meditation, you did not meditations, guided trips. Uh, yeah. Trips. You have, which is great, which was exactly right to do. Well, I, you know, I look. I, you I'm couldn't a, write about it. I'm an immersion journalist. Yeah. And when I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a steer. And when mm-hmm. I yes, wrote did. about architecture, I bought. You know, I, yeah. I built a house. A so it's what I do. Of, yeah. Yeah. And, right. um, and so I couldn't get into the an immersion legit, journalist. I love that. <laughs> the, the trials. I didn't qualify. Sous vide journalist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and so I had there was an, I had no alternative but to go to this underground. There is a, there is as it, I learned I didn't know this thriving uh, underground of, of of therapists, really mm-hmm. serious professionals who are mm-hmm. working with these medicines underground. Um, and then there are the shamans doing ayahuasca trips, mm-hmm. and um, so there's circles also. But I I, I did a few circles with mm-hmm. ayahuasca, but I also. Uh, did one-on-one with psilocybin LSD and a very bizarre one called 5-MeO-DMT. What's that? What's that one? Well, you're not going to believe it, but it's the um, smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. <laughs> I'm sure. No, I think I've seen that in a movie. Like, it's, you know, yeah. it's... Uh, who figured toad that venom. out? Right? Yeah, well, yeah, it's toad venom. Um, they licked a toad or something. Yeah, except licking it in the case of this I toad get will get you sick. Yeah. But you have to smoke it um, to burn off the toxins. Mm-hmm. So, and these experiences, I worked with different guides. They were actually uh, very interesting, in some cases, incredibly productive personally um, experiences. One was the toad was absolutely horrifying. Mm-hmm. I, I would never do that again. Because hallucinations, probably. It went beyond hallucinations. I had not only the dissolution of self, but the dissolution of everything. Mm-hmm. There was no matter left. There was just mm-hmm. this pure storm of energy that consumed the world. It was in my head. It was out of my head. And there was no place to stand so at all. So was that from you or from re- something you see that's maybe real? Who knows? I just yeah. felt like I yeah. was uh, I was in an explosion. I was in the middle of an atomic explosion. Why and is that a bad thing? Because uh, it's terrifying, yeah. <laughs> and it kills you. Um, right. And I thought I was dying. Mm-hmm. The only good thing about that trip is it only lasted twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. And when I reconsolidated as a as a as an eye with a body mm-hmm. in a place that right. had a floor and windows, I was so grateful. I had a sense of gratitude such as I've never had before. That for you're the, here. Not just that I'm here, that anything exists. Right, right. That there is something rather than nothing. Yeah. Try talking to Elon Musk. We're all in the simulation. But we'll get into that in okay. a minute. <laughs> so You're not here. I was, uh, I was here and it felt great. And I was so grateful. And I just touched my legs and my yeah. face. And, yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. So, so you, know, no you could the, argue for that. frog venom, um, but the others... The others were... Uh, I mean, I had one trip in particular... Uh, this is mushrooms. On mushrooms, a guided psilocybin trip with a very skilled guide, very professional. And I had an experience of ego dissolution on that that was um, incredibly useful. And, and it still is useful to me. I mean, that basically that you can see yourself out there. And mm-hmm. I experienced myself painted over the landscape. I was a coat of paint or butter or something, mm-hmm. and, but I was still perceiving it. I know that sounds paradoxical. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it made me realize I'm not necessarily identical to my ego mm-hmm. um, and that my ego is this character that is useful, but also annoying. Mm-hmm. And that, 
you can get out from under that sway uh, by by meditating, by thinking, by, by just recognizing there he is. He's doing that thing again mm-hmm. and getting that kind of distance. Now, 10 years of psychoanalysis might give you the same right. ability. Right. Um, it's not unique to psychedelics, but it happens very quickly. I got it in four hours. Right. And I think it's slightly changed my relationship to my ego. Huh. And it's also made me somewhat more open and less defensive than I would normally be. I'm right. a little less and uh, is, is, trigger happy. Is, is LSD different than that? that? It's not substantially different. I didn't have that kind of experience on LSD only because I didn't have as big a dose, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, LSD is a much longer experience, mm-hmm. which for some is troublesome. Sometimes people want to be done and they, right. they're not done. Right. And then ayahuasca? Ayahuasca, to me, wasn't substantially different. I, I, I think that the, these, cla- these so-called classical psychedelics, they work mm-hmm. on the same brain networks. Mm-hmm. They both they all lower the default mode network. Um, and But they have different uh, textures or qualities like and this is probably just the power of suggestion, mm-hmm. but ayahuasca is always very much about plants and jungle animals. And there mm-hmm. were a lot of vines that I was imagining. <laughs> I had this amazing image. It was almost like a visual koan <laughs> that I was I was wearing eye shades, which is yeah. very common. And yeah. I had these tight straps and I felt a little constrained and suddenly the straps turned into bars and I was encased in this black steel oh uh, my God. bar. God, the things that- It was a little scary. Me. And then I saw this vine growing up through the bars and just kind of, happily rising and using yeah. the bars to advance its interests and then escaping. And I realized, oh, oh you, can, can you can't cage plants. You can only cage animals. How, how can I follow that plant? How can I be a plant? Right, yeah. Oh, that's perfect So for, for me, it was a, 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 a big deal. And <laughs> I am the I, vine. I, yeah, I am the vine. I still don't know what it means, but <laughs> yeah. it's one of those th- images that is very vivid in my mind. And, yeah. I, and from time to time, wow. I, I So I do you, do you recommend it. people do this regularly then? No, I don't recommend anybody do anything. I mean, they're right. not for everybody. Right. And, um, and is I don't, it like a one-time thing or a many-time thing? I don't thing? know. It's you know, many people do it many times. Right? Yeah, people do it routinely. Some people do it very often, which I can't imagine. My first reaction after doing it, they're very mm-hmm. big experiences, or they were mm-hmm. for me, was I don't need to do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're not addictive, and yeah. you see why. Um, yeah. It's just too intense. Yeah. Um, I know people who do it every year on their birthday as kind of a stock taking. And yeah. if they were legal and it was you know cool to do it, openly, that, I think I would do that. I think it would be very useful. Yeah. I think they're much more useful the older you get. Oddly, there's yeah. a line in the book well, that I, I really believe, which is that um, psychedelics may be wasted on the young. Yeah, um, yeah. But once we're stuck in our habits and our patterns sure. and we have creative blocks, that I think yeah. is when it's All most right. useful. All right, we're talking to Michael Pond. This is fascinating. When we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea around um, addiction and where we go where we go as a, as a country from here using these things because there's a sort of a war another new war on drugs sure now um, again Michael Holland's new book is called How to Change Your Mind What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches is about consciousness dying addiction depression and transcendence and we'll get to transcendence at the end when we get back today's show is brought to you by TransferWise do you ever need to send money internationally sure your bank or PayPal can get your money from A to B but that transfer will cost you more than it should a lot more That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends, Tabit and Christo, who were frustrated by their bank's bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise, people sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. 
TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee. So it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said it's important that my bank get some extra money. Test it out for free at transferwise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's transferwise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. Recode is conducting a survey to learn more about our readers and listeners. We'd really love it if you take a couple minutes to help us out. Here's Recode's editor-in-chief, Dan Fromer, to explain more. Thanks, Kara. We're conducting an audience survey and want to hear from Recode Decode listeners. We're interested in hearing your thoughts about how we can better serve you on this podcast and in all the places and platforms where Recode has a presence. The survey is completely painless and will take just five minutes of your time. To share your thoughts, just head to recode.net slash survey. That's recode.net slash survey. And thank you for being a member of the Recode community and thanks in advance for helping us continue to improve. We're here with Michael Paul, and this has been a fascinating discussion. He's obviously the journalist and bestselling author of several books, most famously The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's written a new book, though, on a different topic, sort of related, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. So we've been talking about your experience doing them. What about everyone's experience? Do you, when you think about this, the way, look, cannabis has just gotten here in California legalized. It's headed that way, no matter what Jeff Sessions says. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be a, yeah, a major industry. Um, and I think probably a federal kind of a thing. And how do you look at that in comparison? Is that the movement towards thinking? I don't think that's the model broad? in this case. I, I, I really think the model is um, uh, going down the path of FDA drug approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are- For treatments of for treatments, around dying, depression. Right. The, the different indications that we've talked about. Um, and that's happening. I mean, they've completed phase two Two trials of psilocybin for uh, depression and anxiety and the dying, and um, the, the FDA has signed off on a phase three. That's the last step before approval. Mm-hmm. And the FDA surprised the researchers by saying, "We don't want you to just study cancer patients. We have a huge depression problem in this country. Mm-hmm. Depression rates are, are high. Mm-hmm. SSRIs are not working that well." We want you to study depression in the general population, what's called major depression, and that's what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. The money has been raised. Um, without big farmers' involvement, which is incredible. Um, and so the phase three trials are gonna get underway later Why this year. Why not big farmers? Wouldn't they wanna jump right into well, this? Well, you would think. I think that they're stymied by a couple things. Or One, there's- Santa would love to get <laughs> There's it's no- a plant. Yeah, there's no um, uh, IP here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no intellectual property. Ah. The, the the patents on LSD have expired and uh, psilocybin, there are no patents as far as I know. Um, it's all over Berkeley. Yeah, I so mean, if you it's go over a there and eat wood chips. That'll don't be eat the wood chips. Don't <laughs> eat the wood chips. Um, so, and MDMA, which is also mm-hmm. uh, ecstasy, ecstasy. Is, uh, that too has an expired patent. So there's that. They want that. You can't is that control related? it. That's- well, some people consider it a psychedelic, and it's being researched and supported by the same group of people, uh, and it's had remarkable success in treating people with PTSD, whether mm-hmm. they're rape victims or Iraq War veterans. Uh, and that too is going into phase three um, uh, and it has breakthrough status. I mean, it's the FDA has said this is a very important promising medicine. So we may see that coming too. Um, but I think that this is the path. Mm-hmm. And uh, once the FDA, uh, if these results in phase three are anywhere near as good as they were in phase two, and phase three is bigger studies, more sites, um, 
they will have to reschedule it. Uh, right now, um, psilocybin LSD are on schedule one, which means there's no accepted medical use, high potential for abuse. They'll change that, and then doctors will be able to prescribe these drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the that's the proper path. At the same time, you will have this underground. There are people who could benefit from these drugs who don't have pathologies. Mm-hmm. Um, what one researcher memorably described to me as the betterment of well people. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you help them? Uh, and, and I think that becomes a real You have a, a richer issue. life or to get... Yeah, or, or remove deal obstacles. with their... Yeah, yeah. remove obstacles. I mean, Temporary look, obstacles. we all have minor league versions of addiction, right? We mm-hmm. all have addictive behavior. We all have... Twitter. Episodes of depression and anxiety. Uh, we all have these mental patterns that we would love to break. Right, and but here we're is functional a tool. for the most part. Yeah, long. we're functional. But here is a tool that mm-hmm. could make us better than we are. Mm-hmm. And um, so how do you give access to those people? Well, eventually, many of those people are just, you know, garden variety neurotics mm-hmm. and they go to shrinks and shrinks give them medicine and that they may then become eligible for some of these experiences. Mm-hmm. We may look ahead to a time when there are mental health spas um, right. in the same way you go to a So to a gym. clarify yourself. Yeah, and that you would go once a year or something and have this big experience. What happens then to the drugs that are used in this area of addiction or depression? Well, in depression, I, you know, I guess it would be bad news for the people who sell Paxil and Zoloft and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, Prozac, um, mm-hmm. if, if this works as well as they think it does. Mm-hmm. The other reason Big Pharma is not interested in, though, it's not just IP. It's the fact that you don't have to take this pill every day. Right. They want to sell drugs for chronic diseases. Right. If, as they do with everything. Exactly. So right. they're not interested in a drug you would take once or twice or three times in your life. They don't know how to make money off of that. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be an interesting business challenge. Um, you also, and the other, the last thing that makes it a square peg in the round hole of psychopharmacology as we know it, is that um, it's not just the drug. The guiding uh, is very important. Right. You, it's it's really psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. You need someone to prepare you. You need someone to be in the room with you and mm-hmm. tell you what to do when you get into trouble. Um, the guides work from a set of flight instructions, you mm-hmm. know, and they tell you if, if you see something really scary and monstrous, you, need to tell me. you know, you need to go up to it and confront it and mm-hmm. say, what are you doing in my mind? Mm-hmm. What do you have to teach me? You can't, if you turn and try to run and resist, that's when you have a bad trip. Yeah. Uh, if you see a- it's that uh, poem, In My Mind's Reception Room, which is what and what is whom? I think it's T.S. Uh, Eliot, T.S. Eliot, something like that. So if you see a door, open it. that, yeah. That's great. It's very appropriate want, poem I, for this. When the, the candle's lighted, all the guests are uninvited. Something. It, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful poem. Anyway, go ahead. I need to look that up. Yeah. Um, so, so you need the guide to be with you, and that's mm-hmm. very reassuring because they're looking out for your body, and right. you know you can. I mean, they're ground run. control. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. Can the go naked running space. of yeah. LSD people. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then you need someone to help you make sense of the experience. Mm-hmm. Integration, they call it. And it's really important because it's a very nonlinear. It's inco- yeah, it's, yeah. It can be really confusing. And if you think about it, most people who've had a big experience with psychedelics, they put it in this box labeled weird drug experience mm-hmm. and they just, mm, you mm-hmm. know. But in fact, it's a product of your mind. It's mm-hmm. not a product of the drugs and it bears analysis. Right. And so you need someone to help so you open that So where do people box. find that? Like, how did you know that someone who'd be dangerous versus some, because you could see this being abused badly. Well, I, I interviewed a lot of guides mm-hmm. and I have to say, I did talk to some that made me really nervous. I, mm-hmm. I wanted nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just a little too 
wanky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's like interviewing therapists. You mm-hmm. see somebody you connect with and you, you feel like you trust them and they're not crazy. And um, But they're operating illegally, presumably. They are. They are. But they're all, what, I, what surprised me is they have a code of conduct. Mm-hmm. They um, uh, have, uh, you know, medical release forms. Mm-hmm. They take medical questionnaires. They're even though they're operating illegally, they're very professional. And that mm-hmm. surprised me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are tons of charlatans out right, there. Right. Um, but the community that I, I was able to um, uh, get into in my journalism, uh, I, was, I was very impressed by their so seriousness. What do, what do you imagine our government will do around this? Because it's just like feels like a third rail for them. Although I never thought yeah. cannabis would be. Yeah, I know. It's it's very hard to predict. I mean, change comes in this country sometimes very suddenly um, and quickly. Cannabis is an example. Gay marriage is an example. Yeah. I mean, you know, here you have a case where these drugs have the potential to help people who are not being helped. Mm-hmm. PTSD victims, uh, people with depression. It's important to understand that mental health care in this country is badly broken. Mm -hmm. There has been no innovation since the early 90s with the introduction of the SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And their their effectiveness is fading. And so to my surprise, a lot of very kind of establishment voices in mental health care, people like the uh, former heads of the American Psychiatric Association, Mm -hmm. former heads of the National Institute of Mental Health, are very open to this research. And the reason is because they say, well, look, the system's broken. If you compare mental health care in this country to any other branch of medicine, Mm It's pathetic. Right. I mean, it hasn't in- increased our lifespan. No, nope, not made us um, happier. And has not made us happier. It's and and so, I think that there's an openness, and mm-hmm. and that's true for the regulators too. What about elsewhere too. in the world? More. Well. In Switzerland, psychedelic therapy has been going on for a long time. It's interesting. And it was, of course, LSD was discovered there um, by uh, Albert Hoffman in the, in the 30s and 40s. Um, but there is a company getting started called Compass Pathways that's established in England. And their plan, and they have permission to do trials all through Europe to use psychedelics, uh, psilocybin specifically to treat treatment resistant depression, depressions that haven't yielded to two other treatments. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a business and they've raised uh, so far about $19 million. They're going for like $40 million and that will give them enough to get through the trials they have to do. And they're gonna sell a package, uh, sort of what I was describing of of the, you know, trained therapists, the the pills, and the, the room, and they're gonna sell that to clinics and they're gonna sell it to national health services if they can show that it's a more efficient way to treat depression than what we now have. Wow, so I'm gonna finish up talking a little bit about this, the, the, of the other sort of life hacking, is it's part of the same thing, this nootropics and this idea of fasting and things like that. I'm just curious, it's all part of the same idea of freeing, you know, the old Timothy Leary thing, free your mind, yeah. which I think is what it gets stamped with too much was is San Francisco free your mind drop in tune in yeah what, and, and what I think it, it would in, be a shame if drop out tune in. <laughs> turn on tune in drop, drop out, out right. yeah which was drop uh, Timothy is the, it was the wrong part well that was the part that freaked out all the parents right and because Nixon, kids did drip, and, yeah, drop the out them, yeah. they wouldn't go to they wouldn't go to Vietnam and they went right. to the hate in right. 1967 drop out's not the right word <laughs> drop out of that I think that was the most threatening word yeah in the whole thing it's the wrong word too why would you want to why would you want to involve yourself that's the well whole you were dropping out of a civilization you yes. thought was really corrupt yes. to create Yes. another one, yes. ideally, right? That wasn't, there should have been another. Anyway. Yes. But. Anyway, uh, we can go relitigate yeah. the 60s. <laughs> right. but, um, 
You know, I think that people are searching for alternative realities mm -hmm. and alternative uh, ways of approaching living. their work and, and living. And this is part of that general movement. But it is not strictly a tech community thing. No. I mean, uh, you know, I were the, the best guide I worked with was someone on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, it's more coastal, I would say, right. than Midwestern, as far as I can right. tell. Um, and the tech community has has given a lot of very good funding to the research, mm -hmm. that, um, I mean, but others of, have too. Of I mean, perfectibility of your body and soul. Yeah, you know that's really what's well, behind. Well, that's an old American utopian idea, sure. right? Yeah, um, Chautauquas. And yeah, and going back Kellogg's to the transcendentalists and, and yeah. that, and basically transcending that's what your Kellogg's was right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a it was a utop it was a health spa that was going to improve you not just from Tonics biologically, but, but morally and, and spiritually. And mm -hmm. this is an old American idea, um, self-improvement. You know, that's, that's our thing, the perfection, the pursuit of happiness, the perfection of self. And I think that's one reason psychedelics have always resonated with Americans. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, they're a utopian project. And, and there are many people involved in this work. And, and I, you know, we have to bring some skepticism to mm -hmm. it too. So what is the skepticism to it? Well, um, you know, for drugs that were supposed to help you transcend your ego, it produced some amazing ego tests like mm -hmm. Timothy Leary. Yeah. Um, uh, there's an ego inflation that seems to go on with some people. People get too much, yep. evangelical about it and they, and they want everybody to take it and they want to put it in the water supply. And yeah, um, they do. I think we have to work on healing individuals. The idea that a drug could heal a civilization is really dubious. And, um, and But there are people who think that way. Yeah. There's a kind of a rational exuberance that happens to even to very sober researchers when they study this. Mm -hmm. And that is that, my God, this is really important to civilization. This could change everything. Yeah. And, you know, that's what got Leary impatient with science and led to the backlash. And right. um, even with Jobs, I don't think he thought of it quite as much as everyone else made a big deal of it. Everyone always says, oh, he's did this and therefore Apple. I'm like, I'm not so sure. No, that's it's quite, not, I don't think it, you draw but, that they, line. But they do that. They, they do that idea. Well, of, he famously said it had Bill Gates. Gates, you know, tripped once, mm -hmm. uh, Windows would be a much better product. <laughs> Probably um, not. And, and Gates responded, but I did, I did. <laughs> Probably not. And uh, so it's very hard to trace, look, in any creative endeavor, what, right. what was the cause? Mm -hmm. um, have, have there been important contributions to technology and culture as a result of these drugs? The answer is yes. Yeah. But, you know, 99.9% .9 of drug experiences don't produce anything of interest. Right. You do enough of them, you're going to, it's like that mutation. You're going to get mm -hmm. that mutation, that mm -hmm. amazing new way of thinking and that new idea, and that could change everything. And that has happened, and I think, you know, will happen again. So um, I just think we have to be very, you know, sober as we look at this. We And, and the main thing, if I advocate for anything, I, it's not for taking for everybody taking these drugs. It's for let's do this research. Yeah, let's let's play it out right. around therapy, but also around understanding consciousness. You know, the first thing I learned when I started studying consciousness and reading all the scientists and all the philosophers is we don't know shit about consciousness. It, it's really amazing how little we know, and we may never. It may never yield right. to the normal tools of science. Here is something that's telling us some very important things about consciousness. That there's, and, it's multi-layered and there's yeah, much and, more. And that, you know, ego consciousness is only one kind of right. consciousness. And that there, and William James said this 120 years ago, um, that next to our everyday normal consciousness may lie just behind what he called the filmiest of screens, other forms of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to, there is a, there's a Italian theoretical physicist named mm -hmm. um, Carlo Rovelli. He wrote this sweet little book called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. He talked, he gave an interview to The Guardian a week or two ago where he said, 
It was an LSD experience at 15 that opened me up to the idea of theoretical physics. It <laughs> seemed absurd to me before that, that space was curved and time was relative. Mm -hmm. He said, but on LSD, you realize, um, well, maybe the way reality presents it, us to us normally is not the right one, that mm -hmm. there is an unseen reality, which right. of course is the premise of theoretical physics, of right. religion, and of other systems of right. thought. Right. So um, psychedelics can so put us in touch these. with that. We glimpse them we in glimpse regular them. life, and then perhaps it brings you out, and there's other consciousness. That whole uh, concept of, there's been a million movies about that, that yeah. we're not accessing our brain and this right. and that, you know. And, and you do, one of the things. That thing, idiot I mean, Scarlett Johansson one, or yes. <laughs> remember that one? If I, yeah, I do. If I learned anything, it is that the brain is like much vaster. It's astonishing how little we know. It is astonishing. That's your and next book. That it's all, I mean, there's so much more going on there than we know. Uh -huh. And that they're probably right. We're probably using 1% of this this biocomputer. Some people are, do not heads. agree with that. I've, I've yeah. studied that a lot. It's a really interesting question. And how some people think we are. I mean, it's it's a big, again, another big thing in tech that we're, yeah. we aren't accessing it. And when we do, we'll be able to move tables around, which is, of course, all what people always want to do, move a fucking table. Yeah, I don't know around. why. I mean, well, <laughs> we've got these hands. It works perfectly fine. I'd like to fine. work. I go back and forth in time, <laughs> like if there's anything. And then you get into the idea of simulation and stuff. Um, yeah, I haven't gotten too far down that path. Oh, you got to uh, meet those people every time. Oh, God, I this is what I do. I get ayahuasca offers, and then I'll get off stage, and I'll say, that was really good with one of these tech people. They're like, well, it's not real, you know. And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, I, yeah. I really am I, like, I'm okay. Not, I'm not, I, right. I don't go down that path. It does blow your mind when you start to think about it, though. It does, bit. it does. And, you know, I, I mean, look, the other thing I learned is that there are other ways to access these other That's planes right. of consciousness. Meditation, Meditation. is very powerful. For me, the legacy of my psychedelic trips is I became a much better meditator. Ah, I could kind of get to I'm that place. And, and look at all the American Buddhists. Yep. Um, people like uh, Jack Kornfeld, Joan Halifax. It was, you know, psychedelics started them on that path. Right, and, right. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. Ultimately, that's where everybody needs to do. Yeah, and that's something, you know, uh, that you can do regularly, legally, you know. Uh, they're breathing exercises that can access an altered state of consciousness that I experimented right, very with. Very last question. What is all, like I was joking about Twitter and social media and stuff like that. What does that do? That well, just, it's, it's more addictive behavior, I think. Addictive I mean, I, I and ego-driven. Yeah, it is ego-driven. I mean, we're getting that little dopamine surge every time we get a like and, and that... A uh, feedback loop gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and uh, yeah, it can be very destructive. And um, you know, one way to break out of that is having one of these experiences. And you'd look at it and say, "Twitter, what a what an absurd <laughs> thing that is!" And you would believe it in a way you've never believed it before, because there's <laughs> this conviction. Right uh, the, the insights you have on these experiences come with this incredible uh -huh. conviction. Yeah. Even the most banal insights, right, like right. Twitter is stupid, right. you'll yes. believe it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I will. Then I'm coming right over to your house. And doing I'm going to do that ayahuasca person who just asked me over lunch. I will not do it with you. Anyway, Michael, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Kara. If you enjoy, read this book. It's really fantastic. It really was. Are you writing about food next or nothing? What's your uh, next? I'm, you don't I, I don't know what I'm doing next. Do I, I sort of let my audience tell me in a funny way. I mean, I go out and talk space about a book travel. for a couple Please months. take on space uh, no, travel. I, that's not my... How can I do it, though? I mean... You need to go. Yeah, I I'll know. I'll introduce you to them. 
Uh, you know, uh, my interest in the mind was really stimulated yeah. by this, and there may be other things to do in this oh, general it's area. A huge area. I don't, I don't want to write a food book right now. I'm, I'm very active. I'll write articles on food. I'm, right. I'm very active in the politics yeah, of food. Don't, do, don't be their dancing monkey, Michael. Don't do your food <laughs> thing. Give us another food, Look, Michael. The, as you know, the great privilege of being a journalist is you get to learn whole new subjects as an adult. Where yes. else do you get to yep. do that? I, it's so wasted I'm on full LSD advantage. and education is wasted on the young. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference, which is coming up, and Code Media. And thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart.